0: Good morning, everyone. How are we? Good. Yeah? I feel like it's obligatory to make some comment about the weather, given the fact that, you know, it's Hillary, it's a, it's a hurricane. Um, trying to be a blowhard spoil sport for our day, but we're not going to let it happen, right? Well, I thank you guys for being here, and thanks for the, uh, the privilege and the opportunity to share with you guys. Um, before I pray again, because I, I need it, I, I've entitled this sermon, Well-Worn Paths to God, and I want to let you know where that comes from. A dear friend of mine, uh, Tyson Matzenbacher, had an incredible mother. Um, her name was Jeannie. And amongst many other things, she was a therapist. And she wrote uh, a small book called From the Watching Chair. And it was her reflections after years of being a therapist, at watching um, or coming to understand, rather, her vocation that as a therapist, her job was to hold space and hold space with people in their pain and to watch Jesus enter the room. And this small book is her sketch of how she learned to hear the voice of God and learned to see the healing hand of Jesus at work. And she tragically passed away from cancer a few years back. And I remember um, talking with her on the phone shortly before she died. And she died with incredible joy and dignity and grace. It was one of those um, sorts of things that gave us a window into what uh, living really looks like. I asked her, Jeannie, like, how is it possible that you're filled with such joy as you're facing down death? And her response was, I've developed well-worn paths to God developing well-worn paths to God so that even in the face of death, she could carry herself with joy and with peace. The last time I talked to her, I wanted to try and encourage her and like, Hey, we got your boy. You know, we lived in a house together. We'll take care of him. And of course, you know, over the short few minutes, by the end of that, she was encouraging and counseling me. And I was like, wait a second, you're the one who's dying. I'm supposed to be like encouraging you, but no, she was even at that very last moment pouring out. And that's a picture of what it can look like for us. If we say yes to walking the healing journey, if we say yes to walking the paths that we're gonna look at today. Can I pray one more time? Is that all right? Father, Spirit, Son, we just thank you and we praise you. Thank you for the sense of your presence this morning as your people have gathered in worship. Father, I have too much in my mind and on my heart and on the page. I just ask that you would quiet my own heart that you would be speaking to me, that I would get the privilege of sitting in the watching chair this morning and watch you move through your church, touching people's minds and hearts, healing pain, setting people free so that we can, we can give you the glory. That's what we're here for this morning, Jesus. And so we bless your name. Amen. So my question, my first question for you guys, you know, Ryan, a couple of weeks ago kicked off this series for us and did this masterful job talking about, um, who is this God that we follow and the good shepherd that we see in Psalm 23. So my question for you is, and for me is what is your governing image of God? The implicit one that um, isn't maybe what you immediately say, but if we could look into your heart and if we could interpret your actions and the way you posture yourself towards God reveals what it is that you really think of him as. Well... I just want to start by being by being a little bit vulnerable and talking about how this psalm has been something God has been teaching me deeply about. See last year, Kelly and I, my wife, we were a couple of months into prayerfully trying to discern what is the right path um, for us to take as a family and for me to take vocationally. You know Ryan mentioned i 've been on staff for seven years here and loved being on staff here. It was an incredible privilege. God used it so powerfully to to break me down and to heal me and to put me back together and to begin to give me a sense of my calling and vocation. So, in October, I had this incredible opportunity to um, graduate from paid staff to being a volunteer here and accepted a position over at Nations Media, which has been a partner of the churches for a long time, um, where we captured stories of transformation from around the world. Incredible things that God is doing in the persecuted church in Iraq and, and China and all over the place. Stories of people like you and I, people who've been captured by the love of Jesus and have postured themselves in places of brokenness committed to being his hands and feet, being a part of the solution about bringing his kingdom. So I, we we took a leap of faith, jumped into this, and I thought for sure it was going to be what I was going to be doing for at least the next year or two, maybe the next 15. I don't know. Well, fast forward 10 months in. And uh, me and uh, the other members of the board, after a lot of prayer and realizing, well, you know, the money for this little startup has run dry, uh, God's kind of made it clear that there's another chapter, you know? But as you can imagine, that causes like fear and uncertainty in me. I left this wonderful church community and this, this secure job that I had figured out how to do to t- try and help start this company, to, to grow it. And We failed. Miserably, well, in some ways. (laughs) But so during that time, my first response was one of, like, oh man, I failed. I didn't perform. Like, man, like, what could I have done better? If I had done something differently, maybe this wouldn't have happened this way, right? Um, And then as, as I thought about that more and I reflected, I was like, well, wait a second. We prayed really hard, we sought community. You know, um, we read scripture, we prayed, and we felt really confident, including Bob and Ryan and Nick. They they blessed and released me and said, yes, our sense too is that, that God is calling you to this. So after I got through that initial anxiety, I was like, wait, I can rest in the confidence that that, I didn't make that decision on my own. Um, so there's got to be something else at work here. So then my next posture, so the, the first one that I went to was uh, this idea that I'd done something wrong. So it was a picture of God as a judge. It kind of looked like, that is not the judge. That's the next one. So God is judge, right? Uh, the next one I went to is you can go back to that other image. Um, was God kind of like the the professor, the angry professor? Because I, I I called a mentor of mine and said, "Hey, I'm in this transition season, this liminal space, and I know that oftentimes this is where God actually has something that He really wants to teach us. And so I'm just trying to figure out what is it that God's teaching me during this time." And He had this incredible response. He said. Who says God's trying to teach you anything during this time? It's like, what? And he said, yeah, Joseph, I've been listening to you talk. And, you know, those of us that have grown up in the Western church and in the education system that we just prayed for, um, our minds and our imaginations have been really f- like formed in a particular way. And it's, it's really forming of the head and less so of the heart, so oftentimes. We come to church, we study scriptures, particularly as you know, Calvary Chapel, as evangelicals. We love God's word and we, we concentrate on studying it. But that can, over time, um, narrow how we think of God. And so he said to me, Joseph, I asked him, I was like, well, do you have any wisdom for me? And he said, yeah, yeah. Set aside your academic view of God and ask a different question. God, is there there a different part of your character that you want to reveal to me during this time? And you know, because he's a mentor and I respect him, I wanted to impress him. So I wanted to have a good answer. And so I I thought about it for a day and I texted him and I said, well, maybe it's this idea of Jesus as my brother who's alongside of me in there, but that doesn't really resonate. He said, yeah, that's kind of hard. Um, and then slowly over a couple of days, I was just praying, God, reveal to me what is the your image of your heart that you want me to be guided by during this time. And you guys, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't when I was sitting and thinking, it was when I started waking up, waking up in the morning with Psalm 23 on my lips and started thinking about this idea of God as shepherd. And so just really quickly, um, our, the governing image of God in this text is the one of the shepherd the good shepherd. And Ryan did a masterful job unpacking that in verse one in so many ways. But the one thing that I really reflected on about shepherd that I wanted to share with you guys today is well, what is what is the role of the shepherd? What, is he, what does that look like? Well, yes, the, the shepherd, the shepherd cares for the flock. He, he guides the flock. He protects the flock, right? Um, he goes out in search of the lost sheep. But you know, the shepherd also is letting, what he's really doing, he's bringing the flock, he's bringing you and I into the environment or into the conditions where we have what we need to flourish on our own. He's not spoon feeding each of us as the sheep, right? Now, if we get in trouble, yes, he comes and he tends to it, right? He helps, he helps the, the sheep give birth to the next generation, all of that. But really, God is there and he is present. He is not this helicopter parent who's watching our every move and who's, who's correcting or judging us for what we're doing. He's not constantly trying to say like, oh, well, see, you went over there, you shouldn't, you got to learn the lesson. No, actually, it's this beautiful symbiotic relationship where the sheep, we follow him along these paths from valley to valley where he he brings us into this space where we have all that we need. So that's actually the first truth is that, believe it or not, no matter what you feel today coming in, is that God is concerned. He sees you and he has everything that you need. Now, what does that look like as we get into it? the first part of this verse, Ryan and I shared, he texted me last week. He said, I'm annexing the, be- the beginning of your verse. He restores my soul. Um, and I said, hey, that's fine. You know, verse numbers are arbitrary anyways, and this is a poetic text. So this is actually great. We can both have it. Um, he did a great job of reminding us that, hey, for us as followers of Jesus, this idea of Sabbath, this idea of rhythms, this idea of beginning from a place of rest rather than from this sense of being driven to produce, to consume is is absolutely fundamental for us, that God models for us in the institution of the Sabbath when he rested and delighted in his creation, that, that true worship and that right discipleship and following begins from this place and delighting in who God is and what he's done in our lives. And this is, he restores my soul. So I just wanna talk about soul really quick because this is a tricky word. It's translated soul, but I, if you're anything like me, when you hear the word soul, um, what, do you th- what do you think of? Anybody? No, it's okay. It's, it's a tricky, I know, I'm setting you up. It's like a trick question. Um, so I wouldn't want to answer either. For me, when I when I first see the word soul, I'm tempted to think of, oh, well, that disembodied spirit that is the eternal aspect of me that will live forever after I shed off this mortal coil and get to finally be in the presence of God forever, right? Yes. That's what you first think of. That's what I first think of too. And there is, Scripture does talk about something like that when it comes to us and our humanity and what eternity is gonna look like. But actually, particularly within the Hebrew text, this word nephesh is actually not that. That idea comes more so from the Neoplatonic space of this disembodied eternal soul. And there's some real dangers if we go down that road because it leads to this, this view we often get that the body is bad, that the material world is bad, which is really Gnostic. Not so in Hebrew. This Hebrew word nefesh, I mean, it can be translated a bunch of different ways. But um, it could be translated as neck. Um, It could also be translated as kind of the whole person. And that's the thing that I want to talk about. Yes, it has this connotation of soul because nefesh is like your whole integrated self, your emotional, your mental, and your physical being, without which we aren't fully human. Without which we aren't fully created in the image of God. So in order for us to understand what it means to be led along paths of righteousness and what that looks like, we have to understand that this, this text is speaking to our whole person. So it's not just the state of your eternal soul, your eternal soul. Because, I mean, if we look at actually scripture in, in general, um, heaven isn't just this disembodied place that we go to, right? Isaiah and Revelation both describe God's ultimate desire for all of the cosmos is what it is a new heavens and a new earth where things are recreated, rightly ordered, no longer with the brokenness of sin, no longer with creation groaning, but, and and no longer with this separation between him and his people. God, his vision of consummation of all things means that you and I have bodies just like Jesus has a resurrected body. And we get to dwell in this city garden with God, whatever that looks like. I mean, a fun little aside my systematics professor um, in seminary, he, his name is Veli Mattikarkanen. He's a delightful Finnish man. And um, after studying a lot of these different pictures of, the, of what uh, the eschaton looks like, or, you know, um, he says, well, let me summarize. It's like, there are many thoughts and views about what that would look like. The best I can say is that there will be a degree of continuity and a radical degree of discontinuity. Hmm. <laughs> this is not a sermon on, uh, on eschatology, but that was just too fun to, uh, to pass up. So the importance of understanding you know, like what it means that he restores our soul, that's where, why Ryan was drilling down on those daily, those weekly, those monthly, those annual rhythms and practices that we have that slow us down, that nourish our body, that nourish our emotional life, that nourish our mental health and well-being. This is crucial to understanding that it's from this place—a place where a God who wants to care for our every need—is the one that's going to lead us on paths of righteousness. So here we come to this next section. So we've covered He restores my soul, understanding it in this holistic sense. Um, and before I get any further, I got a little ahead of myself. Um, I want to show you a map of of where we're headed. I titled this Well-Worn Paths to God. And then the very long subtitle is From Personal Renewal to Kingdom Impact. Because that's what the journey that I think actually just this one small verse takes us on, which is incredible. The more I was studying it, the longer and longer my notes got. And I was like, Ryan, I got too much, dude. He's like, I know, that's the point. That's the point of doing this series the way that we're doing it, slowing down, taking it word by word is because there's a world of meaning and richness inside of this. So this is the journey, the journey from personal renewal to kingdom impact, from having our souls restored to being led along paths of righteousness. What? For his name's sake. That is the kingdom. Now, so this is the nice, the theoretical journey. And it starts here. It starts with personal, intimate interiority. It's grounded in the love and trust of God. And then it moves ultimately as it grows towards maturation to Kingdom impact, which is communal and external, it's participatory, and it is expressing the tangible love of God. And then as I was thinking about it, I was like, well, so what does this path look like practically? And this is what I came up with. (laughs) Because see, it is is definitely not a straight line. We love thinking linearly. That's not how Hebrews thought of. They, They view time not so much linearly like we do, but as cyclical right? Governed by the rhythms of the seasons, the rhythms of life, the spiritual life of the physical life that Ryan was talking about last week. So this made me feel so much better about my own story because my story of being led from personal renewal to kingdom impact is a very winding one. And one that has, as the Psalm lays out for us later, definitely leads us through valleys of shadows of death, those moments of of deep darkness, of lostness, of pain, and of grief and of confusion. It's it's a journey that sometimes we're going forward, and then sometimes we're going backwards, and it is up and it is down. Isn't that right? Yeah. Doesn't that map onto your experience? I don't know where you're at on the journey this morning when you showed up. Some of you, I'm sure, are are on a mountain top high of faith, where you just You have full confidence in God as your good shepherd, where you love him. You trust him. You believe that he is trustworthy, that he is good. But maybe some of you guys are in a different place. You know, there's this incredible quote from Oswald Chambers that said, the root of all evil is the suspicion that God is not good. The root of all evil is the suspicion that God is not good. If I'm being honest There are many days where that's what's going on in my heart. When I look at my actions, when I look at my choices, when I look at my attitude, um, I'm not filled with peace and with confidence and with joy, all the fruits of the Spirit. No, I'm filled with anxiety. I'm filled with doubt. I'm filled with fear and confusion. I'm filled with anger at the way that things uh, and the world isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And that tempts me to to believe, to have that suspicion that like, God, are you really good? Because look what's going on in the world, look what's going on in our communities, look what's going on in our families. There's brokenness and heartache and loss. Can you really be good? If we can't be honest about the fact that that's that's what we all carry in our hearts some days, um, then we're going to be tempted. To perform, we're gonna be tempted to try and um, make believe that this is this top line is what life is supposed to look like. And we're gonna get trapped by shame, we're gonna get trapped by bitterness. But if we can just be honest with one another and in community about how hard this path is to follow sometimes, then we'll discover an incredible grace. We'll discover that God actually is fashioning this community into a safe space for us to carry each other's burdens. And to walk the path together. So how are we guided by God? Well, the first thing is we have to exchange our willfulness for a willingness to be led. See, the culture that you and I are raised in is one that, what is it? It prioritizes individuality, autonomy, strength, excellence, efficiency, right? Man, you go to any bookstore, if you actually go to bookstores anymore, or if you're perusing Amazon, you know, um, the self-help section is giant, uh, you know, but so is, uh, so is that business section as well. You know, we live in, for better or for worse, a very materialistic, capitalistic, consumer society that has really deeply shaped you and I. So there's this temptation, uh, as Ryan mentioned last week as well, you know, the, the greatest threat to our spiritual health and well-being is, is busyness, is a hurried, rushed life. One that's perpetually filled up by us consuming ideas and products and experiences and whatnot. We're told, you know, this is a, this is a bootstrapping country. It's America. You know, we pride ourselves on that in so many ways. Um, work hard, you know, build a life, build a business, contribute... In many ways, that is so beautiful, but only if it's been subordinated to, for us as believers, only if that's been subordinated to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When we do that, you know, when we exchange our willfulness for a willingness to be led, well, then something magical begins to happen. So, How are we guided by God that begins by this right inner posture? And I love, uh, so it always begins with God. It doesn't begin with you or with me because this isn't about performance. How are we guided by God? First, we have to receive that free gift that God has given. I love actually how in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, the prophet says, or God, this is what God is saying. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Right? I love that image there, that one, that exchange of a heart of stone, a willful heart, a heart that because of its woundedness often fears God, right? Suspects him not to be good, suspects him not to be the shepherd who's looking out for us, who will guide us into green pastures and lead us beside quiet waters. That heart of stone that has actually begun, has kind of believed the lies. says, you know what? No, it's up to me. It's up to me to take care of myself. It's up to me to look out for and protect me and mine. And I got this. I don't need other people. I don't need God. You know, people have proven that they're going to let me down. And you know what, God, sometimes it feels like you've proven that you're going to let me down too. So we, we develop these calloused hearts. The first movement of God's grace is always that he wants to make an exchange to remove that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh and to put his spirit in us to what? To then guide us. It's not that, you know, the great temptation, I think, of this verse in many ways, he leads me along paths of righteousness. When we talk about righteousness, if you're anything like me, I immediately go to a performance mentality. I immediately begin to think of, well, what is, what is morality and what is ethical? And am I doing and thinking and believing the right things? Now, ethics and morality are are a crucial part of walking the path of righteousness, and we'll take a look at that in a little bit, but it begins here, a right inner posture of receiving this new heart and this spirit of God that is going to animate us and begin an inner transformation, a, a renewal of the personal, intimate, interior space that naturally will grow and mature into a community of prayerful love that's on mission to impact the world. Okay, so after that movement of the heart, then how does he guide us? Well, this is one that we know and love, scripture, right? His revealed word, this incredible tapestry of, of stories and of commandments and of examples of what does it look like? Who, do, who is he? What is his heart? How do we follow? How do we know him? Is he trustworthy? The, the salvation history that's laid out through, through, through scripture, Scripture sheds light on the complexities of life and it points us to God. It begins to shape our minds and our hearts so that we don't act according to our own limited human wisdom, but that we begin to discern a deeper pattern, the deeper truths that can guide us in ways that lead to life. You know, within uh, a text of scripture that I always i really loved that I'm going to recommend that the, whoever gets to preach on the valley, valley of the shadow of death uses this one in there as well. But I couldn't help it because I love it so much. God's voice in scripture. Isaiah 30, 20 through 22. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. See, in, in the light of God's truth as revealed in scripture and in the experience of God's love mediated to us directly through encounter with him and through relationship with one another, the way will be revealed to us and something powerful will begin to transpire in our hearts a transformation that changes our desires changes our desires from being self-centered to being other-centered to being motive from motive being motivated by a spirit of fear and scarcity to being people rooted in a spirit of generosity and abundance, because that is who we serve, a God of generosity and abundance, who's revealed time and time again throughout scripture, his desire to partner with you and with I in caring for this incredible and broken world. So how do we, how does God guide us? Right in our posture, understanding that it begins with our hearts, Then we begin to be shaped by scripture and then we participate in this prayerful community of love. That's a term that Dallas Willard uses in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says the ultimate end of this whole project together is that we as a people would begin to represent a new community on earth. This kingdom of heaven. We're going to get into that a bit more when we move to this next section on righteousness. Righteousness. And just disclaimer, since we only have one service today, it's going to be a two and a half hour service. So I've got, I got another 90 minutes. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I do have too much. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and move through this. So, so what a right path. So we've covered, he restores my soul. We've, we've started to dive into, he guides me in the different ways that he guides us. Personally, through speaking and transforming our heart, corporately and individually, as we study scripture, and then corporately, as we, as we learn to love one another and to become a prayerful community of love, that's trying to discern what is God's will for this community? What is God's will for your family? What is God's will for your life? You're not in this alone. You have people who will pray with you, who will ask you the good and the hard questions that help you, help you discover what that right path is for you. So what are right paths? We finally come to right paths. Psalm Sixteen eleven says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So it begs the question, on right paths, another way of translating it is on paths of righteousness. So that means we get to talk about the very shallow concept of righteousness. Uh, it was a joke because when I was doing some word studies on righteousness, I was like, oh my Good Lord, have mercy on me. How are we going to cover this ground? Well, let's just start with the words, okay? So the Hebrew word here uh, for righteousness, tzadik, uh it's, it's rendered a couple of different ways. And then in the Greek, it's uh, diakosune. And as I mentioned before, the, when we hear this term righteousness, we most oftentimes, I think, go to uh, the courtroom setting. We think about what is ethical and what is moral you know, and once again, like I said, that, that usually has us focusing on external actions because that's how, that's what people can see in my life. That's what you guys can see in one another's lives. That's what, you know, we're tempted to judge other people by their external words and our actions while all the long time, all, the, all along wanting to be judged by our internal motivations. Um, and it does have that connotation to it. But the righteousness one, this is more so actually as you dive into the root meanings of the word, the way that um, the basic meaning of it is one who follows, one who stands up straight and follows the right path or the way of God. And in the Hebrew context, this really means faithful participation in the covenant community of God, which naturally includes right behavior, ethical and moral. So when I was digging into this, it's like, how do we get, how do we get below that, the surface of action? How do we get past this kind of external thing and start where God starts, which is with the heart, which is is the restoring of our souls. And so I was thinking about it as like, you know, righteous action, righteous thought, righteous behavior. um, Where does, where does the engine of action come from? The heart, what is in the heart? our deepest longings and desires in so many ways. When I look at, when I look at my own life and I say, man, I feel like a wreck right now. I just was, I was cruel to Kelly. I'm anxious. I'm irritable. I'm snappy. You know, I'm not believing the best in people. Um, I've learned to start trying to reverse engineer and say, wait a second. Okay. That's the end of a process that began some time ago. That that action or that unkind speech that I had is actually reflective of something that's deeper in my heart. So let's trace that back and discover, well, it's usually connected to a desire, right? As a desire for, for love and for trust, for truth, for belonging. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm making poor choices or I'm... Um, I'm acting wrongly or I'm speaking poorly, it's it's usually because I I have this sense or this fear that I'm not actually getting, I'm not going to get what it is I really long for. Those desires are going to go unmet. And so I begin to become defensive and I blame or I shame or I try to control or I try to escape. All these different things, these strategies, these coping strategies that you and I develop when those deep, deep desires of our hearts are in danger of going unmet. So desire is really the engine of righteousness. And that's uncomfortable because if we're really honest and we look at the different idols that we have in our lives, we look at the different ways that we, um, we don't measure up when judging from externals, it reveals, what does that reveal? It reveals a disordered heart. So the incredible wonder-working power of God's love and mercy, kindness and grace, is this, as soon as we say yes to Jesus as soon as we commit to following him as our Lord and savior, and we receive this gift of the Holy spirit that the new Testament talks about that inner process of reordering begins. And sometimes it happens profoundly in people where it's like night and day difference. They, they, they have this incredible experience and it's like overnight. They're this new person. I mean, have you guys seen that happen? Yeah. I know I've got a handful of testimonies of people in my life who that's been their experience, you know, and I praise God for those. But for a lot of us, I think it's, it takes a lot longer oftentimes. <laughs> so this idea of God's righteousness, um, it's more than just this moral performance, this ethical, these ethical standards. It gets to the root of our hearts. And as I mentioned, especially in the Hebrew context, it. It connotes this participation in the community, the covenant community that God has established. Now, back in the Old Testament during the time of this writing, that was what? That was Israel, right? But as we explore, just as we skip ahead to Jesus and his righteousness, um, you and I, us Gentiles, we get included into that new family of God. That's part of the scandal of the gospel and of the work that Jesus achieved on the cross, right? Is that dividing line where it used to be that you and I would have to become Jewish in some capacity. Um, we watch throughout the, Old, the New Testament as the early church wrestles with this profound truth that God has actually now removed that separating wall. There isn't neither Jew nor Gentile, right? Slave nor free, male nor female. For all are one in Christ Jesus, the incredible power of the cross, the gift of God's righteousness to you and to I, is that it radically reshapes the community as we know it and invites each of us into this beautiful space where our identity is not first and foremost ethnic. Our identity is not first and foremost rooted in our our gender. No, it's first and foremost rooted and grounded in the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that empowers us, that empowers you and I to walk these paths of righteousness. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that is at work in you and I, reshaping our hearts and renewing our minds. It's the next part of what it means to walk these paths of righteousness is to understand, hey, be gentle to yourself, be gracious to yourself. God is, it is his kindness that leads you and I to repentance. And he understands that this is a process for us. He understands that it takes time to unlearn those bad habits that we have, those old ways of relating to one another, to ourselves, to God, and to the world. It takes time. And he's committed to that. And he's going to be walking, and he is walking with you and with I along that process. It's an inside out process. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then in James 3, 17, I feel like that idea is kind of built on, so this new wisdom, this wisdom that comes from above, from heaven, is first of all pure wisdom then it is peace-loving, it is considerate, it is submissive, it is full of mercy and good fruit. And the promise here, it's impartial and it's sincere. Those are some of the qualities of what righteousness looks like. Practically outworked. This wisdom that comes from above, this new way of being and relating to one another. And I love verse 18. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. The way we do things the way that we speak to one another, the way that we treat one another matters so much. It impacts the harvest that we that we have. It's a real I know I'm I'm man, I'm I'm supposed to be done. <laughs> Can you stick with me for a few more minutes? Yeah. Okay. Cuz I want to I want to get to Jesus a little a little bit more, okay? So righteousness it works for it works for us. It's first and foremost a, a free gift from God. He gave us his one and only begotten son, right? Then it works in us. It's that that inner process of transformation that I've been talking about. And then it moves through us out into the world. And this gets to the justice component of God's righteousness because it's bound up in that. God and his righteousness is ultimately concerned with the, the state of the world, not just the state of your own soul. It's not just about personal private piety. It is about community transformation, You know, um, my wife is privileged to to serve and to lead our um, community impact team. Mission impact, wow. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Mission impact. (laughs) It is part of the community, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, so that's something where we, you know, the motto of this church is transform people, transforming the world, right? We talk about church without walls, that this is just the locker room where we where we get to practice what it looks like, where we get to, um, to hear from God, our coach, where we get to worship him, and then we get out on the field. Ultimately, the process of God's righteousness that is a gift for us, that works in us, ultimately finds its fullest expression moving through us out into the world, where you and I move freely amongst our communities, our neighborhoods, our businesses, our families, as the hands and feet of Jesus getting to be his image and his likeness and modeling and inviting people into this radical new community where they're safe, where they aren't judged, where they're given time to grow and to heal, to learn, to repent. Where, where they get moved from, from crisis into character development into the fullest expression of their calling, them fully free and alive, asking God the question, okay, hey, like I trust you. And I believe that you've given me unique gifts and skills. How do you want me to put them to work, God? And then we get to watch all these incredible creative ways where we're going out to the community and we're loving and we're serving people, bearing witness to the power of Jesus in our lives. You know, the thing that breaks my heart is that most recent surveys about generations, the generation that is walking away from the church, when they're asked, why, why are you leaving the church? It's not because we can't clearly articulate our beliefs. It's because when they look at our lives, they don't believe that we believe what we say we believe. <laughs> they look at us and they, well, you don't look anything like the person of Jesus. Your communities don't look like the person of Jesus. And doesn't that grieves, grieves my heart. I love being a part of this church because of how much you do reflect the character of Jesus. With your generosity and with your service and with your curiosity and with your commitment and your discipleship. The worship that you brought this morning that we are bringing right now. So why do we walk this right path? Why do we need to develop these well-worn paths to God? Well, because the path of righteousness is also the path that leads to the valley of the shadow of death. And those rhythms that Ryan talked about last week cultivate in us the sort of character and the trust and the reliance on God as our good shepherd so that when the valley of the shadow of death comes, that is when the image of Jesus shines brightest in us. That is, it is first and foremost, it isn't how we win that demonstrates the love of Jesus more powerfully than anything. It is how we lose and it is how we suffer. It is how we suffer. It is how we serve. And it's how we sit with people in their suffering. That is the most powerful testimony to that new heart, that heart of flesh rather than that heart of stone that God has put within us. we walk these right paths for his name's sake because ultimately the the focus of this psalm and the focus of our worship the focus of our lives and our hearts that deepest desire that we're trying to get to is a desire for communion with the incredible one and only creator of the universe and of you and of me the triune god it's jesus we do this not So that we can be thought well of, not so that we can experience blessing and safety and community. Those are all wonderful fruits that we get to enjoy as God transforms us. It's ultimately for his glory. I'm going to ask the band to come out. Um, And we're going to close, we're going to close in um, a very simple song, but it's, it's one of my favorites. Um, It's the doxology. And um, because that's what we're here. We walk these paths of righteousness. He restores our soul. He empowers us. He guides us. He gives us the wisdom of his scripture. He gives us the the spirit of truth that lives within each of us. That voice whispering, this is the way, walk in it. It's for the glory of God that you and I um, are here today. And he is glorified when you discover who you truly are, when you bring your whole heart to him, your whole wounded and glorious heart. That glorifies him. When you get to experience the transformation of his love and you share that, when people see that in you and you share that freely in your communities, in your families, that gives glory to God. When we come here and we dedicate time to studying his word to ministering to one another, that brings glory to God. When we imagine incredible ways to move out into our communities and to sacrifice for people who don't know God, to love them, to bless them, to serve them right where they're at, that gives glory to God. That is what it means for, uh, for His name's sake. Church, each of us, each day, each week, have a profound opportunity to give glory to God by being who you were uniquely created to be. By letting him walk with you through the dark valleys, through the moments of pain and heartache in your own story and your journey, unearthing that, allowing him to heal it and to begin to breathe into you into each of us a vision for what your life could be. And what an opportunity when storms are bearing down upon us and fires rage and war threatens and there's so much that seems so unstable to be a people of peace, to be a people of joy. What an incredible opportunity to give glory to God. Amen, church?